0: Always fun to start the show with a letter or two. Uh, Chris Chen, our producer, how many do we have time for? One. Okay. I brought two, but we only have time for one, right? Okay. Uh, One. By the way, welcome to the podcast. I'm all out of order, but I have a letter. I love reading them and uh, keep writing. By the way, we're getting tons of mail, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to write. I will respond to everything, so I thank you for your patience. Brian from Seattle writes, hey, Alex. Alex. How do you get in touch with such great guests? Do you sit in the bushes outside their houses with a Zoom H4 Pro Field Recorder? Brian, what kind of a person do you think I am? Of course I don't do that. I would never sit outside of a musician's house in the bushes with a Zoom H4 Pro Field Recorder. My God, that is not me. I use a Zoom H5 4-track b 392 rs with the interchangeable mic capsule. That's the one I sit in the bushes with. I'm Alex Green, and this... Is Stereo Embers the podcast? Check this out.
1: Summer in a-
0: music of my guest today on the program, Marvin Etzioni. Let me tell you a little bit about Marvin Etzioni. Well, many great stories start in the East and end up in the West, and the story of Marvin Etzioni does just that. The Brooklyn-born musician and his family moved to L.A. in the 70s, and it didn't take long for Etzioni to fit right in. His first band, Model, played with everyone from the Plimsolls to the Motels, and his next band, Lone Justice, Signed to Geffen and open for you, too. Not too shabby. Etzioni left Lone Justice after their first album, and from there, he got really busy. So busy, in fact, it would take a full podcast to cover everything he's done, so bear with this partial list. Etzioni put out a series of awesome solo albums, produced artists like Peter Case, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and Counting Crows— wrote songs for Jimmy Barnes, Victoria Williams, Voice of the Beehive, The Williams Brothers, and Judy Collins. He appeared on records by Dog's Eye View, The Dixie Chicks, and Lily Hayden, and he has a band called The Holy Brothers with Willie Aaron of The Balancing Act. I mean, if you want to get an idea as to how respected Etzioni is in the music industry, consider this. One of his solo albums, the fantastic double LP Marvin Country, features duets with Richard Thompson, John Doe of X, Steve Earle, and Lucinda Williams. And based on what I've just told you, this probably won't surprise you, but these days, Etzioni is really busy. The president of Regional Records, Etzioni is in the studio right now working on Lone Justice tracks and finishing up the new The Holy Brothers album. He's also prepping the release of the first new Williams Brothers album in almost 30 years. And Lone Justice are going to be included in an upcoming Country Music Hall of Fame exhibit alongside the birds, the eagles, and more. The mandolin playing Etzioni has had quite a career, and this is quite a conversation. He's a great guy. You're going to love this. So let me introduce you. Here's me and Marvin Etzioni having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: in junior high okay okay i got the first grand funk railroad album okay the same day i got lester flat earl scruggs greatest hits and i played them back to back and in my mind i i don't know 15 years old or something i thought wow these two records belong together in my mind And I didn't quite, and I, it was almost like a crystallization, like a moment. And very often in my life, I would buy records that are two different records, kinds of record. But I remember that moment and as, as like, you know, most people, you either like Flatless Scruggs, you know, or you like Grand Funk Railroad. But it's very, I didn't know many people who like both. I actually like both. And my grandfather was really into country music. So he was the one that gave me, that turned me on to country music. When I was a little boy, he gave me my first instrument, which which was a mandolin. So years later, um, it all seemed very natural to me. When I heard sped up versions of country songs, when I heard, you know, Blood on the Saddle or Rank and File combining kind of, they were like combining glam with country you know they were like guys who grew up on 70s music i totally got it we it sounded so natural to me you know um so that was kind of my backdrop to by the time i met ryan in 82 i had been playing you know everybody needs to catalog a, the kind of music you play so in the late 70s i was cataloged in a band it would have been called New Wave. We had opened, it was a band called The Model. So we opened up for the Motels, Plimsolls, Translator, tons of bands in LA. We All of them got deals we didn't. We worked with a couple of producers, Richard Baskin, then later Springsteen's producers, Chuck Plotkin and Toby Scott, right before they did The River mm. by Springsteen. It was right around that time. Um, so we broke up after a few years. And then I, I started, I went the opposite direction. I just wanted to play acoustic. And so I did a couple of electric shows. um, But in 82, I was playing acoustic. And at that time in LA, just to give you a perspective, it was really hard to find places to play. The clubs that I played at before were like, well, where's your band? We broke up. I just want to play acoustic. Like, you mean turn my band, turn my club into a coffee shop? What are you talking? <laughs> like they didn't literally they, you know, so but I'd open up for the bangles acoustically before they broke at around 82. Um, that that actually connected me with Suzanne over the years. And in fact, Susanna, um, I had already written East of Eden, which ended up on the first Lone Justice album. She called me and wanted to cut east of eden for the bangles manic monday album and i said you know lone justice is probably going to cut it and she goes oh okay <laughs> you know so that time period you know was uh, uh, the work you know on the acoustic front it was nice that she did that i'm um, in in hindsight it's like what was i thinking uh <laughs> it's like the biggest album of the year you know um But I had, I ended up getting a residency to play acoustic at a punk club called Cafe de Grand in Hollywood. So I played whatever night it was. And one night I I played, this guy comes up to me, goes, are you Marvin? I said, yeah. He goes, I really like your songs. He goes, didn't you play in a band called The Model? I said, yeah. He goes, oh, me and my girlfriend, we used to go to all your shows. I really love your songs. I go, oh, that's really nice. I go, and he had a flat top. We started talking about George Jones, Music Records, Pappy Daly, who produced those records. All of a sudden we had this George Jones kinetic moment, you know, both totally into it. And he goes, well, you know, I sing and play too. I said, oh, that's great. I, I said, well, tell you what, I'm going to play here next Wednesday or whatever night it was. Since you co- have come to see me a lot, why don't you take my spot and I'll come see you. And he's like, wow. Okay. He goes, well, you know, I just got together with this girl to sing. I said, whatever you bring, whoever you want. I don't care. So the next week, uh, Ryan and Maria showed up. <laughs> and there were like eight people in the room and, uh, no advertising. We didn't know what they were at. I told them, I don't just leave, you know, like, I don't know who these people are, really, you know, they said, don't worry about it, Marvin, you know, they were, they didn't care, the club didn't care, (laughs) you know, and they played, and it was the first time I saw them sing and play together, and it was great, they were doing Graham and Emmy, Hank Williams, all cover songs, and I went up to Ryan after, I said, I love it, if you want to go original, I said, count me in, if you want to be a coverage band, I don't mind doing some covers, but I want to do covers in the way like the Stones that cover the Beatles or, you know, other artists, they integrated originals with covers, but I don't want to be just a bar band that does cover songs. I want to have an original point of view. He goes, great, we'll keep you posted. To make the story short, that was the way really was, you know, he called me months later, goes, hey, we got a rhythm section. Do you want to come by and hear us? They didn't have a name yet. So I went by the dining room of the drummer's house they were playing in the dining room. I said, this is cool. I ended up writing them soon after. I wrote them a song called Working Late. And that was kind of like the catalyst. It was like, aha, now we have a handle. That song was kind of like our, you know, that was our beginning of having a point of view with an original song. And then I encouraged Ryan to write, Maria, we were doing covers and, you know, there. That's that's how it started.
0: Yeah, because I imagine, by the way, to have heard Susanna Hoff sing a line uh, like, uh, when you hold on to me, there'll be magic when I hold on to you. I would have loved to have heard that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's very sweet of you to remember. I will tell her that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would have loved to have heard that. So, you know, bands like the Gun Club or like that whole germs thing. How how were you absorbing all the punk rock stuff that was happening?
2: Here's the thing. The only thing I really cared about, having gone through the punk new wave scene in L.A., to me, who has the songs? I didn't care about the dressing. I wanted to know what's who has the best songs. When I heard the Plimsoes, aha, they've got a couple of good songs. I heard the Motels. I heard Total Control at a club. We played two sets with them while Martha was drinking champagne on her birthday. Not signed yet. I thought, whoa, they've got a couple good songs. Uh, I heard Translator, a couple really good songs. Um, I heard some of the punk bands. I thought they were loud, but I didn't really think much of their songs. You know? And But I appreciated the energy. Mm. You know? So, uh, you know, I thought, like, at the time, late 70s, split ends. I thought they were great. They had the songs. They had the songs. You know, uh, Neil Finn, I was a fan of when, when, you know, earlier on as well with with Mental Notes. But by the time they did I Got You, there was no punk band that had a good as good a song as I Got You. Come on. It didn't I didn't hear it, you know, but I I heard Total Control. I heard Million Miles Away. I heard these songs in the club. I heard Everywhere That I'm Not. It's like, whoa, these are really good songs, but nobody knows about it yet. You know, so my whole thing was songs. I didn't care if it was punk, new wave, country, rock and roll, you call it what you want. You know, give me a great song. And I, I felt that back then. I still feel the same way now. You know, I can put a fuzz guitar on a track or I can, or, or I can put an acoustic guitar on a track. It doesn't matter. You know, if you, if you got Revolution by the Beatles on acoustic guitar, it's great. I played revolution at a club once in uh, Portland opening up for a band I was producing. They said, Hey, why don't you open up for it? The place was packed and nobody was paying attention. And I played revolution on mandolin, the whole dance floor filled up. Right. That's the power of song. Right. And the guys in the band and they had a girl singing, they're all like, how did you do that? I go, it's the song. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got a song, you're going to fill the dance club. You know, you're going to fill the room, you know. Now, mind you, you can get away with murder at a club, you know. But at the same time, that was really my thing. I'll give you a bit of even a further background. When I was a boy, like eight, my my parents, when I was a kid, we used to go to the department store. And they used to give me a dollar on the weekends when we, they do shopping at Sears Roebuck. The singles were like 58 cents, 68 cents. So I buy a, a 45 one day and they would go shopping. You know, My dad was a carpenter. He'd go to the tool department. My mom went wherever she went. They'd meet me at the record department. We'd go home, right? They always knew that was the only place I ever went. And one day there was a giant bin the size of a door filled with hundreds of 45s. And it was 2045s for a dollar. And I thought, well, I could either buy the hit song in the top 40, because that's all the so- singles they sold, or I'm going to get 20 singles for a dollar, but I'd not heard any of them. These records were all cutouts. You hadn't heard one of these songs. So I bought 20, and I got home, and I made up a game to myself called Look for the Song. <laughs> and I played the 45s, the A side, the B side, no don't hear it and i found two songs that were good but one of them especially good someone should cover it's called television by donna d i think it was carousel records it was kind of like a 60s you know peter gunt kind of grew you know sitting in the parlor on saturday night me and my Louie, no one in sight um uh turn off the television the television come cuddle up close to me when i get through a kissing you you'll never want to watch another tv it's called television (laughs) i remember that as a kid you know so you know there i am in the clubs you know in the 70s early 80s you want to call it new wave punk you want to call it cow punk country whatever i didn't care who has the songs That's always what I was looking for. That was just how I, that was kind of how I invented myself, you know. And so, you know, I thought the Meat Puppets were great. I don't know if they had the great song, but I love the vibe. I love the production. I love the rawness of it. Were they writing songs as good a Haggard as good as Haggard? I don't know. Uh, The Germs, you know. Okay, you know. I, I unfortunately have a sad story that i knew the girl that darby was with when he committed suicide it was a double suicide with darby and this girl casey cola that i knew but he according to casey he didn't give her enough whatever drugs they took for her to to uh pass away as well so she survived um she's passed away since some years ago but i i was close with her Uh, i got the call uh, the next day, I was working at the local record store, Aaron's Records in L.A., and um, and so it was it was literally I think the day after John Lennon uh, got shot. It was right around that time, and she called me. Go, here's what happened. I'm in the hospital right now. I'm okay. Will you come visit me? You know. And she told me about her and Darby. Um, so I was exposed to these bands, but I, I gravitated. Uh, the late 70s early 80s whatever the whatever the reviewers wanted to you know put whatever name they wanted to put on the artist it was like where's the song you know and so that's where Ryan and I connected because I said if you want to go this direction it's about the songs that's what's going to make you last forever you know it's not just the fact that you got Twain in your voice or twang on your guitar or got you or you got fuzz guitar you know the pistols great songs <laughs> you know right. the jam they had some good songs you know yeah so the bands that were coming out patty smith's first record early television you know so all all of the bands that came out i thought you know if they got good songs and are making compelling records you know, count me in. So that was, I was never really intimidated by the bands that played loud and fast. And it was like, oh, you know, we're going to blow you away. You know, it was like, I didn't really care about that. If I didn't hear the songs, I felt kind of a flat feeling inside. You know, like I didn't get it.
0: Yeah, I've been reverse engineering and going back to the Plimsoles. And I have found they didn't just have the songs. It sounds like they had all the songs. I didn't realize how good they really were.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um I I knew Peter kind of in passing. And then we became more acquainted years later. I ended up co-writing uh, the single Old Blue Car uh with Victoria Williams for his first solo album. And then I called Peter one day. I said, Hey Peter, I did a rewrite on Old Blue Car. He goes, What? Because there's a, a an album called Case for Case. It's a box set of a tribute record for Peter. So I cut new old blue car and he called me and goes, Hey man, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you rewrite a song? It's already been written. said, so I did. So then he cut the version that I rewrote for his record, new old blue car for an album. He did wig. <laughs> um, That's funny. And then I ended up uh, producing Peter. He was at his tail end with his days at Geffen. we were hanging out. And I said, what do you really want to be doing right now? You know, because, you know, he, he, could, he could play uh, like he's in an, a British invasion band with the plimsolls, or he could be solo acoustic. He's authentic and no matter what he does, you know. And he goes, man, I just want to do like an acoustic folk country blues record, man. I said, well, you know, a lot of those records were done straight to, they're like mono records. They're not multi-tracked, you know, they just, the person sang. And, and there were people who played alongside, but it's all direct to one track or two tracks. If you want to do that, you know, I had some, a, a, a friend of mine had his studio in my dining room because he was going through a divorce. And so I said, why don't we record at my place? Yeah. All right. I'll call you. So that we cut an album called uh, Sings Like Hell. Mm-hmm. And then that record, and he goes, oh, I remember him saying, well, you know, I'm still with Geffen. You know, I said, Peter, you're with Geffen, but the whole thing is do the music. The business is all going to work out. If you don't have the music and Geffen isn't taking your calls and you're in limbo, put your money, put your time and energy and efforts into, into music right now. He goes, all right. So we did the record. And by the time we finished the record, he was off of Geffen, played the record for the head of Vanguard. and He got signed to Vanguard and they put it out. And they didn't touch a note, no resequencing, boom, here's the record. As it was. As it was, yeah. Did, wasn't Lone Justice on Geffen too? Lone Justice was on Geffen, correct. Yeah, yeah. 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 The mistake that I made with Lone Justice is something that I never repeated afterwards, is that I didn't take Lone Justice and say, here's what we're gonna do, here's the game plan. We're gonna go in and cut a record and we're gonna release it. I don't care if we release 100 copies on our own, but it's going to be an official album. What I did years later, when I left Justice at the end of 85, a few years later, I was introduced to another unsigned band called Toad the Wet Sprocket. With Toad, they wanted me to produce them. They had released a cassette. It was good. Then they sent me some new songs, and I I liked it. So um, I produced the album, what was called Pale. The manager called me up, and said what three songs should we shop what what do you think of the singles i said we don't have three singles we have one album i said press up the album on vinyl about 50 copies right the wet sprocket right pale if that's going to be the title and hand it to people in the music com- record companies and say here's our record if you like it great if you don't uh thank you very much goodbye they called and they, they were like well We've never heard of anybody doing this. I said, well, you asked my opinion. That's my opinion. They called a few days later. They said, go master the record for vinyl. We're going to press it up. So they pressed up the album and everybody lined up. I mean, they, they had uh, DGC Geffen wanted the record. Virgin wanted the record. Columbia wanted the record. The list goes on. They ended up going with Columbia. Columbia.
0: Yeah. Columbia got them. And, it's funny because they had the songs because they came to my radio show when I was in when in college. Right. They played acoustically and Bread and Circus was was the album they were working. Okay. They had like all those songs from Pale. They played Liars Everywhere.
2: Yep. Uh in Love the studio. It. And I was like, that is
0: like one of the greatest things I've ever heard.
2: I know. I know. And and you know, it's so funny. I really appreciate you remembering that there's a song on the record, Hold Her Down. Mm, yeah. And I thought this is a great song, and I and I took and I went out with Glenn. I said, "Come here a second. Is this your point of view personally? Or are you speaking from a character? Because I don't want to release something that it's about it, that that you're actually pro-violence. Or, you know, uh, you know. Because no, no, no. I'm just trying to make the point that this guy's a total idiot." you know, but I'm doing it in his character, you know, Uh, and I said, okay, got it, you know, we went through every song he'd play for me, um, play the songs from the whole band would, and we finished the album, mastered it, but that was the one caveat I made on that record, I don't make demos, I make albums, we're gonna mix it, master it, uh, and then uh, release it in some form, that was it. And Columbia released the record. They didn't take, change a note on it. They didn't change a note on Bread and Circus either, right? They kept that that's as a record. Yeah, that was the deal. And I, I told them, uh, Brad was my friend who had worked on Bread and Circus and co-managed Toad at the time. I had said, when you go to Columbia, you, you tell them, that's part of our deal. You can pay, play, pay for the next album, but these two are finished records. You release them as they are. And that, that they they struck that deal and with them, yeah. yeah, those those
0: guys weren't even 20 and they had just a satchel full of songs where, yeah. you know, I look at a band I've always maintained. I totally agree with you because I've always thought as exciting and dangerous as Guns N' Roses were, they didn't have the songs after Appetite for Destruction. They, yeah, they ran out. It's like I mean, that, yeah. I guess that happens, right?
2: You know, I mean, there's no. Rules on this, this, you know. There's no playbook, you know. (laughs) So every band, every songwriter has a a different. uh, uh, I don't know what to say, but different catalog, you know, different. You know what I mean? It's like just be. The thing is, just because you have more songs doesn't mean they're all songs worthy of coming out. So sometimes, I'm I I'm not really a follower of Guns and Roses, but you know sometimes. Uh, an artist will put out a record, um, you know, that maybe they aren't ready, you know, to put out a record. You know, one time I was talking to a producer who was working with Bob Dylan. And I said, how to go? He goes, ah, I made a big mistake. I go, what was the mistake? He goes, I thought I was producing Bob Dylan. So all the songs are going to be great. So I didn't listen to the songs ahead of time. And then I went in the studio and I realized, oh, he's not ready to record. I need some better songs, but he said, it's too late. This is the batch of songs, you know? Um, So it it all depends who you surround yourself with. You know, if you got George Martin and you're the Beatles in 63 and 4, he's raising the bar high. He wanted to make sure every song was going to be great. It was a real singles driven world back then they got signed to a singles deal they weren't an album act really mm. they were a singles act <laughs> you know um i remember reading about rick rubin and um, uh, um uh, uh, uh uh neil diamond he produced a neil diamond record for american so rick rubin uh was smart enough to go to neil diamond's house neil diamond plays in the songs and he goes, Great, tell you what, I'm going to come back in six months when you have uh, some more songs. You're not ready yet. And Neil Diamond was like, What, what the hell? I'm Neil Diamond. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, but I, I need to cut a great album. And so Neil Diamond said that was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. And he just sat and, and woodshed it for six months. And when, when Ruben heard him again, he goes, Okay, we're ready to record now. You that's know, fair. Yeah, it's more than fair. And I I can tell you first and second hand of stories where I know for a fact a label would sometimes, without mentioning stories, names, where the label or the A&R person would be too intimidated to go up to the artist and say, you know, I, I don't think the record's ready yet, or let me hear it before we commit to putting it out. You know, I'd heard a story of Donnie Iainer, head of Columbia, and Springsteen had just handed in Born in the USA. Now, Born in the USA had quite a few singles on it. Yeah, a (laughs) couple. Right? But but when they handed it in, it didn't have a song called Dancing in the Dark. So at that point, got Born in the USA, Darlington County, it has got Bobby Jean, Pink Cadillac is a B side. Anybody who had Pink Cadillac, that would have been like your first single. It's a monster, right? right? Give it to Dwight Yoakam it'll go number one, right? And so the story that I heard, Einer heard the record and said, I don't hear the first single. So if you hear the lyric to Dancing in the Dark, you know, I'm just sitting in this room trying to write this book. And it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, right. and then he handed in dancing in the dark and he goes, OK, we're ready to go. That'll be the lead off. And he was right. He was right. I'll give you another story. I won't mention the band name. Uh, I actually had played with them uh, as, a, a, as a guitar player, mandolin player on their first album. They had a hit on the first some relative hit, did pretty good. And then I wasn't involved in the second album and they handed in to Donnie Einer, they were on Columbia. Donnie Einer says, You know what? I, I love you guys, but I just don't hear the, the single on the record that's going to really break it. You know, you don't understand. Our fan base will love this record. It says, Look, we'll put it out, but we're just letting you know. You know, I'm just letting you know that I really think that if you had the single, well, our fans are going to love it. All right, boom, they put it out, Ooh, just dropped it. It's like dropping a stone in the ocean. Boom! End of their career. Oh, that did the career. It was over. It was over. They put out the record. Band was dropped. Never heard from them again. You know, never heard. Never heard again. So here's here's what was different at that time period than than now. Now I'm not saying there aren't any A and R guys or heads of companies, but what's happening in our culture now is that with forty thousand records coming out a day. We don't have. Where are the gatekeepers? <laughs> you know, where are the George Martins? Where are the folks that say, "Wait a minute, why don't take a moment?" You know, it it was precious to 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 go into the studio. Now it doesn't have. It doesn't really seem to have that meaning. I I, I look at it as like a, a like a holy thing. Like like it's like a religious ceremony to go into a studio. Uh, and now people are just, they're just churning out music. Uh, you know, Bowie predicted that music would be received by people for free, like water coming out of a, a spocket. That was his prediction. He wasn't necessarily wrong.
0: Uh, no, I'd say he was dead on. I mean, that, yeah. you know, he was right on it. Yeah. I mean, but you, what you're saying is so true, because I remember someone gave me an REM bootleg. It was from 1980. Two, and yeah. they had songs on that bootleg, Marvin, that didn't appear on albums for ten more years. They yeah. had the songs,
2: yeah. Right? well, same thing with cheap trick. I remember getting the first cheap trick record. and then uh if you got the bonus tracks, whatever, twenty years later, you know, you you'd you'd see a song from their later records being worked on on the first record, right, but it was in early stages, you know. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Uh, I can't really comment on Guns and Roses, like I said, I not really follow them. But it happens, you know, I mean, there there's some artists that just keep delivering and there's some artists that go, oh, that's, a, this is as far as I could go. Maybe, I, I can't say for them, but did anyone tap them on the shoulder and say, you know what, maybe you need to wait a minute, you know, before putting this record out. You know, um, did they have that person? I don't know. it's hard to say i will say though
0: i look at the lone justice those first two records i mean you had the songs those records are airtight um i was so disappointed when you guys when when the band you get the band stopped yeah there was no follow-up to shelter because i thought like to me it was like it was about to be just blow the doors open so but but the band had the songs
2: yeah i mean that was my whole thing in in the early days working with ryan and maria and then the band before I joined, I said, it is about one thing. Just say, we got to have the songs, you know, because anybody can play. It's not that big of a deal to be able to get up and and put a band together and sound good. Everyone's figured out how to do that. What separates one artist from the other, one band from the other, are the songs, period. You know, no no one buys a record because, oh, that's the greatest guitar solo in the world. If they do, it's short-lived. Right, 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 <laughs> you right. Know? But here we are 40 years later and, and we're still talking about Lone Justice. You know, we're still talking about, I wrote, you know, you quoted East of Eden, which I'm more than flattered on, you know, but I wrote that song in 1980, you know, years before I even heard of a Lone Justice. And the, the, it was the last song that we tried in the model and I was going in a different direction and they wanted to go, they were prepared to go more in a, of like eighties music, you know, and I didn't want to go that direction. And I wanted to go more roots. I was already kind of, I was kind of done with the eighties in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I did not like that decade. It was, that decade was not for me. If you listen to the music, you know, the 83 recordings i produced, you know, Uh, And and even some of the songs I wrote on the first Lone Justice record, those were not 80s kind of, you know, songs and records, you know, they they were songs that were going to, I was hopeful that they would stand the test of time. Um, But I wasn't that enamored with the uh, over the top uh, production sounds of the 80s that started to infiltrate. So, well.
0: It was a lot of sonic architecture to, to get through, like you wrote like, cause Soap, Soup and Salvation was you, right? You wrote that? No, Maria, so no, Maria. Maria
2: wrote that song. So Maria wrote it and I remember uh, going to her house and just saying, you know, I really like this. And I just, you know, kind of helped with a little bit with the chorus or something, but it's her song. And I loved it. And I said, let's make sure we have the chorus, it's great. And I said I have a, an arrangement in my head. It should start with drums. He goes, "Okay, let's try it." You know, and uh, that's you know. That, that, so we didn't really. It. And and in fact, when we made the album with uh, Ivan, um, Ivan said, "Hey, Marvin, you produce this track. I'm going to go next door and work on the single." And so I was left alone with the band and Ben Benmont, and we did the track, and it was the exact same version that we cut live that we had two years ago from 83.
1: Hey, Mr. President, this country is cracking at the seams. How long must our children sleep without shelter on the streets.
0: Justice was really interesting because when I, by the time you get to Wheels, I remember thinking like this band could go two different directions because that, that's like a Fleetwood Mac song. I could hear Stevie yeah. next on Wheels, right? Yeah. Um, I know what you mean. Like it could have gone roots here, or it could have gone more eighties. It could have gone the, either way.
2: Yeah, the thing about I wasn't just to let you know I wasn't involved in the second on right. uh, Justice album, but I, I, Wheels is probably my favorite on, on that record. Me too. Yeah, and the thing about Lone justice is that in '83, uh, you know, you were talking about, you know, like there you are it was in the early days of, of Toad, Bread and Circus Pale, and how many songs they had, like real songs, right? Yeah, I and mean, we had by the time, you know, it was '83, we had we had two, three albums worth of material by the, t- you know. And so the potential for Loan Justice was really never uh, fully utilized. It was never really fully documented and it wasn't released in real time. It's like it's nice to say that the, the 83 recordings were released, but they were released, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later. So it didn't it would almost be like if Murmur was just released last year. It, it, you know, Murmur had a cultural impact of because of when it came out, not just because it came out. Right. That's right. True. Right. You know, right. So If it came out 30 years later, 35 years later, you go, whoa, this is a nice artifact. So there was a missed opportunity with Lone Justice that we didn't document records in real time uh, because we could have been putting out an at least my vision was to put out an album a year. Starting in '83, and uh, it just didn't happen that way. One thing didn't lead to another, and and you know, which which is possibly another story. But uh, (laughs) that that you know, it's not comparing. You know, whether it's REM or Beatles or whoever. You know, if you would put out Meet the Beatles, but 35 years later later, and go, hey, we found this artifact by this band. You know. And they made a couple of records, but you never saw Rubber Soul. You never saw Revolver. You never saw, you know, I, I always thought that Lone Justice had that potential in terms of, you know, working with Maria Ryan and Heffington on drums. He was like a Ringo and myself. I really thought we had the potential. We could go in really any direction musically um, because. You know, there was this musical understanding and appreciation that we all like, love country. We all love the Velvet Underground, the Stones, Merle Haggard. It could have gone really anywhere. And that's what I loved about it. Uh, even though people said, oh, you're a cowpunk punk band. So like, yeah, you say that now. That's like calling, you know, R.E.M. a new wave band or the Beatles a mercy beat band. You know, you, you outgrow that moniker if you got the songs. And you create records in real time for the longevity, which is something that REM and the Beatles did, but something Lone Justice did. Had had we gone through an eight album cycle, 10 album cycle, our conversation would be different. Because progress, in in other words, progression is something that Lone Justice never got a chance to do. Yeah. And we didn't release records in real time. That's, that's, That's part of the story, meaning that. REM released murmur in real time, you know what I'm saying? So the pistols came out in 77. That was the, that was what made it shocking if it was hidden, you know, and for whatever reason, the band breaks up before the album comes out and the album gets shelved and it gets released 35 years later. It's like, Oh, that's interesting, but it's not going to, you know, it it doesn't, you don't feel the, the uh, sonic boom of it. You know, in the shock the shock value. So what do you do with because Lone Justice is now are are back in the studio? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh I, I have since Heffington passed away, I found a bunch of quarter-inch tapes of songs that uh, we cut together and I talked to and I assembled an album sort. So it was mostly cover, just stuff we recorded for fun. And I I sent it to Maria and It just happened at that time, Ryan wasn't around. And I said, do you want to release this as solo or Lone Justice? What do you want to do? And she goes, no, let's release it as Lone Justice. But why don't we get Ryan on it and let him add some vocals and play some guitar? Because it's kind of that kind of music. And I said, great, let's do that. So that's what I've been working on. So it's not brand new material that's I won't say it's brand new, but it's all previously unreleased. Got it. So it'll be it. brand new to whoever who hears it. Yeah. And,
0: and in my opinion, Maria is one of the great voices in
2: music. She is the voice of regeneration. No one, well, that was the other element. You know, the first time I went into the studio with her, and I remember, I think it might have been on working late, what ended up being the Western tapes. First time I said, All you got to do is sing the words. That was all I told her. You know, and uh, that was it, you know, because she was too good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, she could do too much. So it was like, okay, just sing the words, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, she's like the Laurence Olivier of acting. She can do anything. It's like, just, you know, here's the script. And, you know, you hear her do uh, Don't Toss Us Away. And it's like, case closed.
0: You yeah. know, case closed, a, for sure. Her
2: voice and, and a great song, you know, uh, that, that's, that's all you need in this world. So not, not only was I encouraging songs, but I was also I realized, you know, we had something that was unique in her. Uh, the other thing is, is that I always looked at Maria and Ryan as equals, meaning that I knew their differences, but I thought he was also a really good foil to her, uh, in terms of this isn't just someone with a great voice and who's, you know, I I wasn't really interested in doing a a Linda Ronstadt type thing, where it was great voice, see you later. It's like, no, let Ryan sing a song, let her, let's do some duets together. We put three part harmonies on songs. So I want, I always encourage the band point of view. I thought, um, you know, like the Pretenders, Chrissy Hine in context of the Pretenders, I found I thought was fascinating. As a solo artist, I, I it, it would have been great, but it wouldn't have been as great from my point of view. Well, and the first Lone Justice album
0: totally avoids the thing that you didn't like about the '80s. That album does not sound like it's on a timeline. It could be anywhere. It's it's mm-hmm. timeless because it's not shrouded with that weird 80s production it has a real kind of universal quality to it all
2: right well i look i'm glad i'm glad you like it and i'm glad after all this time we're still talking about it you know i'm it's it's a very um you know it's it's a very lucky thing that oftentimes i don't know in your case you talk to artists who've been making records for a while oh you don't want to listen to that i did that back then you know yeah but I'm, I'm happy to have people listen to the work I did at the age. Well, and speaking of, of work, your new
0: song to me is what the kids call a summer banger, right? It's really like,
2: are are you, which song are you, are you talking about summer in a bottle? Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my, my favorite song of the summer. I, for me, it, it, it perfectly encapsulates the feeling of like the exhilaration of a summer.
2: I appreciate that. You know, um, just to be candid with you, I recorded and mixed that song 20 years ago. No way. Yeah. And um, I started with me in Heffington, and it was a studio uh, in LA, not far from me called Sonora. And I started with a different, a different engineer. And then one day uh, Jeff Peters came in the studio and heard what I was working on. And he said, you know, I worked with the Beach Boys. You know, why don't we get some background vocals? I said oh okay who do you want to get well I know the two guys who go on tour with the beach boys I said great let's do that so we got them and then someone else like well what about Carol Kay I have her number Carol Kay been in good vibration (laughs) yeah okay I call her up She says sure so she shows up and she's in the parking lot and I and you know I said, can I help you with any equipment or anything? She says, no. She pulls out a bass out of the trunk. It has no case. <laughs> and she says, okay, well, you got me for a couple hours. Let's go. I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, we put the bass on it. And then a friend of mine who I'd worked with previously, previously Scott Babcock, he did the timpani and sleigh bells. And, you know, so it, it was really a fun record to make. You know, what's interesting when I was mastering the record um, I realized that, oh, I, I didn't put any Beach Boy kind of guitar on it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that's, that's the thing about, it. you go back to records, you know, I was doing that recently on a record that we're, we're putting it out. And it's like, oh, I want to make a couple changes to it. And I called the engineer, and goes, Marvin, it's done, let it go. It's fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I didn't want to make any changes to summer ball. I liked it as it was. It kind of captured a a spirit and energy to it. Do you have a
0: trove of songs like this that you, that you, you're sitting on?
2: Oh yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, (laughs) yeah. I, 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 I unfortunately or fortunately wasn't signed the way that Dylan or Springsteen was or Beatle, you know, that everything that they've ever written was documented and recording recorded, you know? Uh, So, yeah. So, little by little they'll come out <laughs> yeah. you know some of it new stuff and some of it uh brand new stuff you know some some of it new brand new and some of it's like summer to bottle it's like well this sounds fine no one's gonna know that when it was recorded you know they just think i did it last year or something
0: yeah <laughs> you know. i mean it sounds really fresh and current
2: yeah that well that would, that's always been my approach to you know to record percu- record production you know even in the days of The '83 recordings I did for Lone Justice on on working late. The track I did in '83, Rolling Stone put it in their top ten songs of the week, and every other song was a brand new recording. (laughs) Unbelievable! (laughs) So it was much more contemporary now, forty years later, than it was when I was producing it. But that was the challenge. I'll give you a quick story about record production, 1983. So I'm in the studio with Justice for the first time, and the engineer. I'd never met him before. And uh, I said, you know, that sound he's like plugging stuff in, you know, and um, preparing for the session. I said, you know, that sound on MTV that everybody loves that really big drum sound. Yeah, he's getting all excited. And I'm talking more and more about it. And he's plugging more stuff. And I know how to make it sound just like that. And then I stop and I say. That's great. Well, don't do that. Unplug everything. I just want the snare drum to put a one mic on it, make it sound like a guy with a stick hitting a snare drum. He goes, "What? That's it?" I go, "That's it." <laughs> and that's what we did. <laughs> Good choice. So that's what that's what I was up against, though. So. Well, especially at that
0: time period, because that all it seemed to me that that the bigger it was, the more it was selling at the time, right?
2: Yeah, I think that everybody got caught up in it and everybody was competing, you know, against uh, everybody was jumping on a bandwagon. And I was more interested in building a bandwagon that no one had heard. yet.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, that's
2: a different point of view. You know, I wanted to create music that I personally would want to buy. I wasn't really interested in creating music that everybody who's everybody. I don't know. It's everybody for now but I don't hear anybody talking about Donna Summer right now. <laughs> no. You know, the, Donna Summer is not in, in the exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame. 40 years later, they're putting up the lone justice against the eagles and the birds. It's like, okay, well, that's that sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, and also,
0: sort of, I, I know what you're talking about, the sort of the enduring element of music, right? Stuff that somehow endures, um yeah. is is the stuff that really doesn't sound like it's grounded in a certain year or or timeline space yeah yeah
2: right? i mean you can still have you know like i was listening to the radio the other day and whatever funky town but lips came on you know i always hated that
0: song
1: yeah
2: you know it's like okay but you can definitely tell within 20 seconds like you were transported back in time it didn't feel like you were where you are it didn't feel like in the moment at all you know no. and then and then you know n- n- not not to harp on the beatles again and then you know something like hello goodbye comes on you know and if that song was released right now by a brand new band people would put those guys on a pedal still overnight yeah <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know that record cut in 66 whenever it was cut you know um you know, but the standard has always been high and there's been a lot of great songs that were cut before the 70s and after this, before the 80s and after. But to me, it's always been But the songs make it timeless. But the record production can also add to it being either timeless or timed and dated.
1: Mm.
2: You know, you listen to, you know, like a bridge over troubled water. Um it's a masterful song and it's a masterful record, you know, you know, so there's a there's a great list, you know, that we're very lucky as human beings who are very lucky to to actually live in the recorded age, meaning that, you know, in the 1800s, you know, no one got to have a copy of a of a, a Beethoven record and listen to it at home. You know what I mean? So you either saw it live or you didn't. Yeah, (laughs) or you created music on your porch with your neighbors or you didn't, you know, but we, you know, as with the 20th century, with the advent of recording and records, we're we're really so lucky and fortunate that at this point now with with modern technology, at literally at the push of a button, anything that's been recorded in the last 75 years is, is practically accessible.
0: It's amazing when you
2: think about it. Yeah, it's incredible, you know, uh, but that's, that's the plus side of the technology. And the other side is that anybody who's sitting in a kitchen right now can release a single and it's like, okay, well, you know, the advent of technology and free enterprise. That's right.
0: <laughs> Are you in touch with, with all guys from like, like guys like Peter, or do you maintain your friendships in this industry or is it difficult?
2: Um, it depends. You know, like with Peter, a friend of mine uh, produced the uh, the doc on him million miles away. so uh, I, I was interviewed for that. And so I was in touch with Peter about that and said hi. And so, yeah, so certain people I'm in touch with Uh sometimes in t- I'm in touch with people, you know, because uh, from let's say, musical really really reasons. So on lockdown twenty twenty. I signed a digital distribution deal with my label, Regional Records. So um, I I had not uh, been in touch with the Williams Brothers, as an example, um, for years, you know, and I contacted Andrew. I said, hey, remember those tapes we did all those years ago? I just have like one or two of those songs. Didn't we do like an album's worth? He goes, yeah. So he sent me like 10 tracks and then I edited the songs. The whole, the session was all cut directly to two-track. And, uh, and I sequenced the record. I sent it to him. I said, what do you think? I said, you know, we could release it digitally. I have distribution. he goes, oh, that'd be great. So I talked to Andrew and David. They they We worked on the sequence. They had an idea for the cover of a photo. And so the album's coming out on the uh, October 21st. Wow. You know? So, and and we had worked together in the early, I had met them in actually in 85. Um, you have to deal with something? Or? No, no, no I, thought my, I thought the cat was. Oh, no, okay. We're good, we're good. So I had, I, we had met in 1985 when they opened up for lunch, 84, when they opened up for lunch justice at the palace and they were signed to Warner's. They put out an album and we co-wrote a song. And then on their second album, uh, I co-wrote a song with David Williams called Can't Cry Hard Enough and that became a hit for them. Uh, David Kirschenbaum produced it and Paul Buckmaster, the great late Paul, late great Paul Buckmaster produced, uh, uh, engineer, um, he orchestrated the strings, uh, wrote the string arrangement. Uh, and I was so enamored with him because he did Mad Men Across the Water and Bowie records and Stone records that I grew up with. So I was all excited to hear that arrangement. So, um, so and then we did a third album together, and then they parted ways. After they were off the label, we did these recordings. So they've been in the vault all these years.
0: Unbelievable. How much yeah. like, unreleased material that, that is um, locked away. But it's coming yeah. out, which is great.
2: Yeah. So it, it's, you know, I'll give you another example. I'm working on um, the 30th anniversary of uh, my first album, which was called The Mandolin Man, which came out in 92. that right before Bone? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so I just found a bunch of bonus tracks. And uh, so I'm putting, uh, I'm working on the concept right now is to do a version, the 1992 original mastered version, Untouched. And then the second CD, I found the tapes uh, that I want to, tra- I, trans- I got them transferred uh, the unmastered version of the album I'm going to work on a couple few alternative mixes and then some bonus tracks. So that's what I'm working on literally right now. That's
0: fabulous. Yeah. 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 That's really cool.
2: Yeah. So you never uh, worked with uh, Crenshaw or did you ever work with Marshall? No, we, we met one time. He seemed like a nice enough guy, but no, we never worked together. I remember when his first record came out, it was kind of a Holly kind of thing. Yeah. I love, I'm a huge buddy Holly fan. Um, so I love that point of view and I appreciated where he came from. Um, he had other songs, he had he was a good songwriter too. He had the songs,
0: that's the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, here's a guy. Yeah. I always thought you guys would be a really good pairing, but um, oh I, yeah. He's a guy well, who had the songs. If
2: you find a way of hooking this up, I'd love to write with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I love to get him on this show. Yeah. Um
2: okay. Well, man, I'm so glad that we did
0: this. And and I'll put you in touch with my guy. When you email me, I'll send you all his information. Great. Um,
2: but I'm so glad that we did this and and sorry for the technological bump no problem this is so great I I, I hope you don't want me saying it I I feel like uh, there's a Yiddish word I've met a lanceman it means a, a friend someone that you have a connection with
0: What else can you say? The guy's a mensch. Marvin Etzioni, lovely conversation, so much fun. I could have done that all day. He had to get to the studio. I was keeping him, uh, but I had more questions. We'll bring him back. We'll bring him back, and we'll continue the conversation. Marvin Etzioni, do you know his work? Do you have his stuff? You do or you don't? You do. Fantastic. For those of you who don't, get it regionalrecords.com is where you need to go, or marvincountry.com, both of those sites will help you navigate the world of Marvin Etzioni, and what a world it is. My world is not as big as Marvin's, but if you go to alexgreenonline.com, you can see what I'm up to. There is a new book coming out. More details on that as we get closer to the release date. Looks like May 1st, so we're a little early on that, but it's not too soon to break the news that a new book will be on its way in 2023. Follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out Bombshell Radio at BombshellRadio.com. Find out what makes our radio station tick. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review – Tell all your friends the order in which you do these things is not important. It's only important that you do them, or at least some of them, if not all of them. I know you're busy. Marvin Etzioni's busy, and here he is with a brand new song, Summer in a Bottle. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.
1: Summer in a bottle. Sometimes love begins with a promise